Well, welcome to our rootin' tootin', highfalutin', straight shootin', Miranda Bruton presentation. <laughs> Everyone here should have uh, gotten some handouts. You'll see one is like an Miranda Bruton cheat sheet. Another one is a hypo that we're going to get to at the end of the presentation. And the, uh, there are a few sheets there to give you an idea of what the questions are. We are going to be putting together uh, an IPG memo that's much more extensive that will have all the case law, uh, so you'll have any uh, sites for any legal principles that we're referring to during the presentation. Our featured speaker for this presentation is David Boyd, who I'm sure everyone here already knows. Uh, when I was talking with David before we started the presentation, he was uh, asking me and begging me, he says, look, I know that uh, you want to say some nice things about me, about how insightful I am when it comes to a random brutal issues. I know that you want to talk about the breadth of my knowledge. And I said, don't worry, I'm not going to embarrass you doing that. I will not say anything about that. Um, truly, though, David does have a very impressive grasp of the Amanda Bruton rule. Or the Bruton rule, as David likes to refer to it. Every time I refer to the Amanda Bruton rule, watch David, he'll wince because he wants to refer to it always as the Bruton rule. And he's going to explain to you in, in a little bit why that is. Anyway, we've got a lot to cover, so I'm going to start right in with uh, some questions. David, what is the Bruton Rule? Before I get started, I'll say that I had nothing to do with the uh, Rootin, Tootin, Miranda Bruton uh, thing, so I don't want to have that to be an adoptive admission used against me ever. <laughs> so what is the uh, Bruton Rule? I do have a pet peeve about referring to it as the Randa Bruton Rule because it is not the Randa Bruton Rule. That does not apply in California. It hasn't since 1982 when Prop 8 passed. Uh, Aranda has a remedy that is much broader than the Bruton Rule. And since Prop 8 is a rule of admissibility that we're entitled to as the people of the state of California, its restrictions, to the extent they're broader than the Bruton Rule, simply don't constrain us in any way. That has not stopped the California Supreme Court and other court of appeals from continually referring to it as the Bruton Rule. Well, they've been wrong before. So, <laughs> uh, the Bruton Rule. Uh, Bruton versus the United States. We'll talk a little bit about the, the facts underlying Bruton, but for those of you who have ever encountered this issue, uh, they will be fairly plain. But the Bruton rule is, as indicated, is a admission in a joint trial. It does require a joint trial. The Bruton rule does not apply when you just have a single defendant. And it's when uh, one defendant's statement that names another defendant on trial, that's that dual trial bit, or a joint trial bit, as a participant now, Bruton referred to it as powerfully incriminates. Regardless of any instruction that the jury disregard the inadmissible hearsay uh, will violate the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution. <coughs> it's inevitable. I'll accidentally say the Fifth Amendment at some point during this presentation. I mean the Sixth Amendment when I'm talking about the Confrontation Clause. And that's the Bruton rule in a nutshell. Joint trial, names, and incriminates the other defendant on trial who is asserting his or her Sixth Amendment rights. 
and an admonition to the jury to disregard is insufficient. It's an admission as to the defendant who made the statement, but it's not admissible normally as to the co-defendant? Well, I mean, ordinarily when you do the application of uh, our, you know, if it's a statement of a party opponent, it's only admissible against one defendant. Uh, you know, frankly, if it's a declaration of penal interest as of now, if it's testimonial, uh, it would be uh, inadmissible over a confrontation clause objection anyway. We'll get to that. All right, so what, what was the rationale behind the Bruton David? I mean, you know, at one point in the history of California jurisprudence, uh, you could introduce the statement of the declarant in a joint trial just so long as there was a limiting instruction so that it was limited to use against the person who made the statement. Well, maybe uh, for me, I, I think just having a basic understanding of the facts in Bruton, which aren't particularly shocking, uh, will help explain the uh, answer to that question. Uh, in Bruton versus United States, uh, I was reminded, I didn't remember this on my own, uh, the trial began one week after the ruling in Miranda versus Arizona. The uh, co-defendant, the person who gave it all up, co-defendant Evans, uh, statement was admitted uh, despite the fact that Evans was not given any Miranda-type warnings. Now, why would he, given that Miranda had just been decided, but there was, as I'm sure that we all know who read cases prior to Miranda, there were other rules suggesting uh, advisements should, should be given. But there weren't any for uh, Evans at all. Uh, interestingly, uh, Evans appealed himself after being convicted, uh, prevailed on appeal on the Miranda issue, was retried and acquitted, and this is noted in the uh, Bruton opinion. Uh, another interesting thing, just understanding uh, why Bruton ended up not being a particularly good decision for the government, even though it was previously uh, totally proper in California to do exactly what occurred. Uh, the Solicitor General conceded error. Uh, and asked for the case to be uh, remanded for a new trial, but the Supreme Court ruled on it anyway. In that case, a postal inspector uh, testified. Uh, Evans gave a, oral, gave a confession that was not recorded. The postal inspector uh, orally reported Evans' confession that both he and Bruton committed an armed robbery. Named Bruton by name and said, hey, we committed a robbery. Uh, the jury was instructed, as you might expect, that it was only admissible against one person, that being Evans, and uh, the U.S. Supreme Court said that in this factual scenario, it violated the uh, Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment of the United States Con Constitution. And then if you read the opinion, it's, it's kind of, their concerns are obvious. Uh, because the statement was naming Bruton, that it was expressly incriminating him in the offense itself. Because they were dealing with a significant constitutional right, the right to confront and cross-examine the witnesses against you, it was one of the one areas, there's probably a couple others, but very few areas, where they ultimately concluded in that factual scenario that an admonition to the jury not to consider it against Bruton would be legally insufficient and implicate his Sixth Amendment right. That's really key here, because when you're talking about the Aranda Bruton rule, it really is all about what are the circumstances when we can assume that a jury will not be able to follow a limiting instruction. If you keep that in the back of your head, you'll easily be able to understand almost all aspects of the Aranda Bruton rule. So they assume then in Bruton that 
in this particular circumstance where you have both co-defendants, one of whom is incriminating the other, that the jury could just not follow a limiting instruction. I think that's a, a fair assessment that it wasn't any sort of factual determination that they didn't follow the instruction. Uh, it's just they assumed no jury would. Okay, so was the Bruton rule modified in any way after uh, it issued by subsequent case law from the United States Supreme Court? Uh, I would characterize it as a modification, and uh, it's Richardson versus Marsh. Uh, Richardson versus Marsh used slightly different language in addressing uh, what constitutes a Bruton violation. Uh, and uh, I have it on the next slide what the answer is, but Richardson versus Marsh used the language that the, in a joint trial, just like in Bruton, uh, instead of saying uh, facially incriminating, they said if the um, confession of the defendant names and implicates uh, in a crime a, a defendant asserting the Sixth Amendment rights, then that violates the Constitution of the United States. They discussed how this comment of powerfully incriminating, which is used in Bruton, was plainly apparent in Bruton. This comes into play when we understand kind of the final Supreme Court case on this issue. It's Gray versus Maryland, which we'll get to uh, in a minute. But uh, let me just briefly discuss the, the facts in Richardson versus Marsh. This is actually a very good case for us in uh, dealing with uh, Bruton issues. Uh, in Richardson versus Marsh, Clarissa Marsh and Ben Williams were being uh, jointly uh, tried for killing uh, Miss Knighton's four-year-old son and her aunt. Marsh and Williams were jointly tried over objection. The, there was a motion for a severance. Williams' statement was admitted, but it was redacted to admit all reference to Marsh, including any reference to anyone outside of Williams. And there was another person, Martin, who actually was the killer uh, in that case, who was a fugitive at the time. Marsh testified at trial, and she put herself in a car. I'm not going to read it uh, line by line, but she essentially admitted she was in a car uh, and declined hearing a particular conversation that had come into evidence with respect uh, to uh, uh, Williams' confession. Because Williams had described, because they didn't redact any reference to Martin, Martin's a fugitive, right? Williams described that uh, he and Martin uh, had a conversation about killing the victims before they went to the scene. And so, in this case, in Richard Verge Marsh, what they had done is they had redacted, as indicated, all references in Williams' statement to Marsh, but not Martin. Uh, in Richard Verge Marsh, that was determined to be totally fine, in that when they redacted Williams' statement referring to Marsh in any way, even though when Marsh testified at trial, she said putting herself in the car where this extremely damaging conversation is going on, goes on, the uh, U.S. Supreme Court said, this is proper, and the standard, and I'll get to one other twist in that case in a moment, uh, but the standard they held, and it's right up there, you can read it yourself, I won't read it out loud to you, uh, except to say that they say that one defendant's statement that names another defendant on trial as a participant, regardless of an instruction to the jury, violates the Confrontation Clause. Now, the problem in Richardson versus Marsh is that in argument, the prosecutor then tied Marsh to the case based on that conversation between Williams and Martin, that conversation that would only be admitted 
uh, with the instruction against Williams. Now that's you can't do. So even though the redaction was proper, limited all reference to Marsh, the prosecutor using the admitted conversation between Williams and Martin to try to suggest that Marsh was lying about not hearing anything, uh, that was deemed improper. In fact, the conviction was reversed. And I did some research on what happened to her, and uh, I couldn't find it. So David, look, I just want to make sure it's clear, in Richardson versus Marsh, even though the statement itself was not facially incriminating, the fact that other additional evidence at trial would could be used with that statement to make the statement incriminating uh, doesn't make a difference. So the one thing that the, this is probably why Richardson versus Marsh is most useful for two reasons. One, it acknowledges that complete redaction to the defendant reference to the identity or actions uh, in any way of the defendant asserting their Sixth Amendment rights in, in Richardson versus Marsh, that was Marsh, uh, Clarissa Marsh, that that is proper. You can do that. Uh, and it made that very clear. Uh, the other value, what they said was, is that even if other evidence comes in during trial that inferentially suggests that the person or that there are other uh, are participants, and that would be this defendant asserting their uh, Sixth Amendment rights. Because Marsh is saying she's in the back of the car, right? And so that implies someone else was in the front of the car, and not necessarily just Williams if Williams is having a conversation, et cetera, et cetera. And so what they said is, even if there's inferential evidence that comes in later that suggests or implicates this person is asserting their Sixth Amendment rights, that's fine, so long as you have an instruction limiting, in this case, Mr. Williams' confession against him only. Okay, so uh, that was Richardson. Was there any further case law from the, from the United States Supreme Court which limited the scope of Richardson to a certain extent. So this is Gray versus Maryland. This is the last of the uh, Supreme Court cases of any significance uh, on this matter. There's the interlocking confessions Supreme Court case, but we're not going to talk about that uh, today. But uh, the last of the cases that uh, addresses uh, uh, this Bruton issue is uh, Gray versus Maryland. Uh, before I uh, talk about uh, the holding of Gray versus Maryland, just briefly uh, give you the facts. To me, it's easier to know them by names rather than Defendant A and Defendant B. If that doesn't work for you, uh, I apologize. So in uh, Gray versus Maryland, there was Anthony Bell, uh, Kevin Gray, and Joaquin Van Landingham, uh, and they beat uh, Mr. Stacey Williams to death in 1993. Uh, Bell confessed. He's the person who gives it up. Uh, implicating himself, uh, Gray, and Van Landingham. Van Landingham died uh, before being indicted, so Van Landingham is the person who's absent and who can be referred to without any limitation in any Bruton analysis uh, before a jury, since there's no Sixth Amendment rights for a dead man. Uh, Bell and Gray stood trial after severance was denied. Bell's confession was redacted, but here, rather than redacting any reference at all to uh, Gray, they inserted deleted or the word deletion, 
And this was as it was being read to the jury. This was, as I, as best I could tell in gray, it was a recorded uh, statement. And uh, when it was submitted to the jury in written form, they essentially used some whiteout. And so there would be a transcript and where the words deleted or deletion were in the uh, spoken uh, confession that was read to the jury. It was just a blank in the written form that they would have received. So David, doing it that way though, it eliminates any reference to the identity of the other co-participants. So what was wrong with that? Wouldn't you have to engage in some inference outside that statement in order to identify who the deleted person was? Well, this is uh, so one would think yes, but uh, in all honesty, uh, Richard Marsh uh, said a couple of things that kind of dared us prosecutors to do some things that we shouldn't be doing, uh, and it's also an example, uh, the, the next fact I'm going to give you is an example where kind of uh, bad facts make bad law. So I want you, before I get to that question, I just want you to think about this scenario, right? So uh, you have presented a case, you're in front of a jury, uh, you're reading this uh, deleted, redacted uh, confession in front of the jury, which keeps saying deleted, deleted, deleted. And <clears throat> right after you do all that, the prosecutor asks this question. And what do you think the answer of the text was? Yes, we went out and arrested Mr. Gray. <laughs> right. So this is something that you cannot do. And it really isn't a brute issue. It's, it was admitted only against a particular defendant. And now you're tying this confession to a new person who hasn't appeared anywhere else. Uh, now, they, it was an issue in the case. There's no debate about it. Uh, to me, it's not a, a brute issue. It's just a don't violate the rules sort of thing. You can't use the evidence that's only admissible against one guy on the other guy. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. Now, <clears throat> uh, the way I say the U.S. Supreme Court kind of teed us up to, to make the error in Gray versus Maryland is that in Richardson versus Marsh, they said, we express no opinion on the admissibility of a confession in which the defendant's name has been replaced place with a symbol or neutral pronoun. So we laugh now, we think, oh God, doing deleted seems stupid. But the US Supreme Court almost dared us to do it, right? Uh, and then, of course, they shut us down. So uh, what they said, and it's a direct quote, uh, this confession refers directly to the existence of the non-confessing defendant. The state has simply replaced the non-confessing defendant's name with a kind of symbol, namely the word deleted, or a blank space set off by commas. Now, what it should have said is, we implied they might be able to do it in March, but they don't have that little tidbit, which is too bad. So, um, what we really learned from Gray is, is simply this, that there, there's direct reference to a defendant asserting their Sixth Amendment rights, and there's an inferential reference to a defendant asserting their Sixth Amendment rights, and when <coughs> it is plainly obvious when reading the confession, perhaps even when uh, it's one of the first things the jury hears, then that is going to be violative of the Bruton Rule in a joint trial, and an admonition to consider it only against the uh, declarant will be insufficient, uh, and as a result, it will be a violation of that defendant's Sixth Amendment rights. All right, so I'm going to give you the chance now to explain your problem with referring to the Aranda Bruton Rule as the Aranda Bruton Rule. Uh, 
three years before the High Court came out with Bruton, they came out with a decision in Aranda. Uh, why, what's the deal? Why, in your opinion, is it really just the Bruton rule, and why? <coughs> Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Aranda was uh, decided prior, uh, what year was it again? I don't know if you remember. 65. There we go. Uh, in 1965. So uh, Aranda was before Prop 8, which was 1982, and uh, Aranda dealing with a very similar problem that we have in uh, Bruton versus the United States, but it used a, not a California constitutional remedy, but it was a uh, judicially formed rule of procedure. In fact, that's basically what they said, or if not exactly what they said. And they said, when we had this situation where we have a uh, declarant, and that statement is coming into evidence, uh, maybe in a joint trial, maybe in a single trial, uh, and the other defendant doesn't have the opportunity to confront and cross-examine that statement, they used a remedy that turns out to be substantially broader than the remedy in Bruton, uh, the remedy in Richardson versus Marsh, uh, or the remedy in Gray versus Maryland. And the remedy was you couldn't use it even in a separate trial, which to me seems odd, but that was their remedy. Uh, and their remedy was that not only could, did you have to delete all reference to the person asserting their Sixth Amendment rights, but anything that could be used later at trial that might connect them inferentially, uh, which is definitely different than the Richardson versus Marsh rule that came out in 1987, if I recall. So there's, a, there's those two distinctions, uh, and they are no longer, Orlando is no longer valid because why? Well, as I indicated, it, so after Prop 8 in 1982, the people of the state of California have the right to present relevant evidence into evidence, and it can only be excluded if mandated by the United States Constitution. And so uh, since there's, uh, Aranda did us a favor by saying it was a judicially created rule of procedure, they didn't even base it in some sort of constitutional right or their interpretation of the U.S. Constitution at the time. Uh, not that that would change the uh, Prop 8 issue, but what it boils down to is Prop 8 only allows a suppression remedy if it violates the U.S. Constitution. So if you're within the U.S. Constitutional rules of Gray, uh, Bruton, and Richardson versus Marsh, uh, Aranda is just not an issue, and it's a pet peeve of mine, but it shouldn't even be discussed, because whatever it says you can't do, unless Gray, Bruton, or uh, Richardson versus Marsh say you can't do it, it, who cares? Okay, one thing to keep in mind, though, is it wasn't until several years after 1982, I think probably maybe as many as 14 or 15 years later, that the California Supreme Court actually stated that the Aranda rule was no longer valid in California. So there are a lot of cases out there which apply Aranda even though they issued after 1982. Be aware of that because the defense might be citing cases and using the Aranda analysis by reference to a case that came out after 1982, but before the California Supreme Court made it clear that the Aranda rule is no longer valid in California, it's just the rule. All right, so David, there is one more case from the United States Supreme Court that has significantly impacted the rule, although it's not a case in the rule line. What case is that? 
so that's uh, Crawford uh, versus Washington. I'm sure everybody here has heard about it. Um, some people uh, think Crawford has been very helpful for us, and in some ways it has, because it uh, changes uh, what is subject to the Confrontation Clause. Uh, if you ask John Lewin of uh, L.A. County, their cold case person, he thinks it's the worst decision ever uh, because it has substantially impaired declarations of penal interest and custodial interviews. And so it depends on who you ask if Crawford is a good thing. Um, but what Crawford did is it changed what we ordinarily look at to determine whether the Sixth Amendment even applies. And that's why it substantially changes the Bruton analysis. Right. Just so everyone's aware, before Crawford came out, if you, if the defense interposed an objection on grounds of the Confrontation Clause, uh, the people could still get in hearsay evidence if it fell within a well-recognized hearsay exception, or it came with particularized guarantees of trustworthiness. That's called the, the Roberts Rule, and it was in existence up until 2004 when Crawford came out. Um, we're going to see why that shift that Crawford uh, imposed is very significant when it comes to the Aranda Bruton analysis. But keep in the back of your mind that at the time Bruton was decided, not even the Ohio versus Roberts test was being used. <coughs> Bruton used a different type of confrontation clause analysis that interestingly uh, for, for, foretold both the Ohio versus Roberts rule and the Crawford rule. Okay. So, you know, very briefly, people are familiar with Crawford, but testimonial out of court statements offered for truth of the matter are barred by the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment. So hearsay statements that are testimonial without perhaps forfeiture by wrongdoing are barred. And let me just give you like a brief example, just to give you a concrete example of where uh, this may help or hurt. So uh, in a Bruton analysis, we're, we're typically talking about a police interview, but not necessarily, right? So you might have some defendants talking amongst themselves, uh, saying certain things that are factually useful in your case about each other, uh, referring to someone who's not there, that sort of thing. And then they're on trial, right? So you have your witness who overheard this conversation, and one of your uh, gang member defendants or whoever is now recounting that one of these other persons who was on trial or not on trial, but for a, a brutal analysis, let's say they're on trial, said, yeah, both uh, myself and whoever the co-defendant is, who will say it's uh, a mirror lens that will come up later, uh, committed a robbery. And so before, you had to deal with the, the Roberts uh, rule of, well, was it declaration of penal interest, and does it have sufficient industry or trustworthiness, and that sort of thing. And you would still be in this brutal analysis uh, if you could get, if you couldn't get past those issues. Now, now the answer to that is that conversation is never going to be testimonial. And if it's not testimonial, there is no Sixth Amendment right. And if there is no Sixth Amendment right, there's no Bruton remedy, meaning you don't necessarily have to redact it. Uh, you probably don't, although we don't have a clear answer on that. Uh, and a jury instruction, because you're not dealing with a constitutional right anymore, is going to be sufficient. And that's kind of the reason why I think uh, Jeff asked me for that 
kind of rationale of Bruton to begin with. It's this really important right of confrontation that's being impaired and not sufficiently remedied by an instruction. But if you're not talking about a confrontation right anymore, because it's not testimonial, that analysis goes away. And it's just, then it's just state law hearsay. And 352. All right, so in light of Crawford then, can an unredacted, non-testimonial statement, like the informal statement you were using as an example, which implicates a co-defendant be admitted at a joint jury trial? From a confrontation clause perspective, the answer is yes, it may. You're still going to run into state law hearsay questions. You're still going to run into uh, the gauntlet of 352 uh, asserted by the defense and perhaps even the court on its own. But if it's not testimonial, there simply is no confrontation right. And if there is no confrontation right, there is no Bruton right to be talking about. Uh, and the California Supreme Court, this, this has been percolating in the, in the courts for quite some time, uh, but the California Supreme Court kindly uh, gave us a very clear answer to this uh, this summer, and the, the site's right up there with the, the pin site in People versus Cortez, and it's a phenomenal case because they so summarily dismissed the issue, uh, it was less than, I think, three quarters of a page. The cases have been going that way. There had been court of appeal cases to the same, uh, coming to the same conclusion <laughs> earlier, and then every federal circuit court of appeals has agreed that if it's a non-testimonial statement, it uh, can come in over a confrontation clause objection uh, in the context of the Bruton rule. Uh, all right, so that's what happens with non-testimonial statements. In light of Crawford, can an unredacted testimonial statement of a co-defendant, which implicates uh, the co-defendant be admitted at a joint, another co-defendant be admitted at a joint jury trial? I assume you're, you're, you're addressing the classic Bruton situation where um, the uh, co-defendant in Bruton uh, implicates Bruton by saying, hey, Bruton and I did a robbery. If that's a statement to the police that would be considered testimonial, absent some sort of waiver, uh, either in court, the defense not objecting, uh, and it's not IAC, then you, just like Bruton, you cannot do that. If it's testimonial and it facially implicates the defendant names and uh, implicates the defendant asserting the Sixth Amendment right in a crime, then you cannot do that. Well, does it make a difference, David, if the statement, the admission that uh, incriminates the co-defendant falls within a hearsay exception? No. You do disagree on that. We do, but uh, that in my opinion, no. I, Jeff has a a different view. There is a case, People versus Arceo. It's in the in the materials. They do make an interesting remark. Uh, I've not seen um, any other cases making a similar remark, uh, and uh, Jeff will explain uh, his argument in that point. I, I'd simply say that what we're what he's suggesting doctrinally it could make sense, and I'll let him explain it. Uh, but you're going to be asking a judge to do exactly what Bruton said you cannot do, with the only difference between being this fact. In Bruton, the statement was a statement of a party opponent. It was agreed that it was entirely, unambiguously, inadmissible against Bruton in any way. 
And so the jury was instructed, hey, only use the statement against the declarant. Do not use it against Bruton. And what Jeff's uh, uh, discussion is going to talk about a scenario where we might have, for example, a declaration is penal interest. Now, those are admissible not just against the declarant under state law hearsay, but anyone and everyone. And uh, so the argument there is, in that instance, and well, actually I'll just let him make that argument, but that's the factual distinction. And there's a case that supports the idea that that factual distinction may be a distinction with a difference. And this goes back to the central theme of the Bruton Rule, which is when can a jury uh, be expected to follow an instruction limiting the evidence? In Bruton, there was three or four factual predicates that have to exist in order for the assumption that the jury will not be able to follow the instruction to occur. And one of those factual predicates was that the statement was inadmissible hearsay as to the defendant who did not make the statement. So in Bruton, the court stated, we emphasize that the hearsay statement inculpating petitioner was clearly inadmissible under traditional rules of evidence. And they expressly left open the question of how they would rule if the statement was made by a confessing defendant where that statement was within a hearsay exception. Courts subsequent to Bruton and under the Ohio uh, versus Roberts rule would look at the fact that that statement was uh, a statement that fell within a state hearsay exception. And keep in mind, if it falls within a state hearsay exception, it's admissible against both. It's admissible against both. So one of the key factors in the Bruton rule itself is that it's not admissible against the other guy. Well, here it is admissible against the other guy. And so we don't have a case that is as clear as we would like, but you can make a pretty persuasive argument that if it falls within a hearsay exception, even if it's otherwise testimonial, the Bruton rule does not apply. And this is probably the only, please, if anybody has any questions about that one, ask, ask Jeff. But uh, <laughs> and if they have any questions about anything, please ask. Um, the, uh, the concern I have with that is if you look at Crawford, Crawford was a declarant. Crawford was not a co-defendant case, uh, it, but it was a declaration of penal interest case that changed the rules regarding where the Sixth Amendment applies. It was determined to be a testimonial statement. It was a declaration of penal interest, if I recall, it was Crawford's girlfriend uh, who testified or who made a statement uh, and a declaration of penal interest that implicated both herself as well as uh, Crawford. And so my concern is that since if the statement is going to be deemed testimonial, which is the hypothetical Jeff gives, and Crawford said, hey, you can't do that except you know, forfeiture by wrongdoing or something like that, that um, an instruction is not going to be sufficient, just like Bruton said. Uh, again, there is a case, and it's in the materials, it's People versus Arceo, that suggests logically uh, that Jeff is right. I think it's too dangerous. Uh, that being said, whoever is, whether or not 
David's right or I'm right about it. I agree with David that uh, it's, it's risky to rely on that analysis. Um, it'd be better if we had an actual case that dealt with it directly. So uh, you're going to have to look at your particular situation, the facts in your case, to determine whether or not you want to take that risk if you want to adopt the position that if it falls within a hearsay exception, it's normally going to be like the, the declaration of penal interest hearsay exception. Uh, and it's not, uh, even though it's testimonial, it still can be used against both. Okay, so if this is not a, a, a situation where the person who made uh, the statement is being jointly tried with the individual against whom it's potentially being used unlawfully, uh, is there a problem if that the person who uh, made the statement is in a separate trial? Well, so if, if you're talking about separate trials, there's just no brutal issue. It's your straight application of uh, hearsay law, and then uh, depending on what you know, I prefer to get, go from the confrontation clause backwards. Uh, some people prefer to go in the other direction. To me, it's simpler. If it's uh, if it's testimonial, then you better have an, you better have a forfeiture by wrongdoing, and you're done for the most part. So. Um, some people go in the other direction. But if you're not dealing with a joint trial situation where the declarant, whoever we're trying to offer the statement in evidence against, uh, is uh, facially implicating another defendant, uh, there is simply no application of the Bruton Rule. Uh, then in that instance, if a limiting instruction is necessary, it should be deemed constitutionally to be sufficient. All right. Do we have any problem with the Bruton Rule if the person who made the statement actually ends up taking a stand? So, I mean, the, the easiest answer is no, just like if this mic's going out, so uh, I'll just speak up. But uh, the easy answer to that is no. What is, what is a confrontation right? It's the right to confront and cross-examine the witnesses against you. And so if the, if the ultimate declarant testifies, then the person who is asserting their Sixth Amendment right has an opportunity to confront and cross-examine the witnesses against them. So, sure, this is all litigated in limine. You want to make sure that the judge understands, hey, judge, uh, if the declarant, the person I'm offering the statement against, uh, but we're redacting it or whatever, uh, ends up taking the stand, then all bets are off, and then it's just a regular trial with regular objections, such as what he told the police is hearsay, if you think it's hearsay, or if there's an exception uh, that you want to use, then that's all fine. All right, so if the testimonial statement of a co-defendant uh, does implicate the other defendant, can we redact it in a way so that we can still use that statement in a joint trial? Yeah, Richardson versus Marsh clearly indicates, and all the case law clearly indicates that uh, redaction, in an ideal world, redacting all references to the defendant asserting a Sixth Amendment right by name and anything that is facially incriminating or incriminating in any way, uh, redact those out, meaning don't use those, and that will satisfy the Bruton Rule. So what's the safest way of redacting a statement so that we know for sure we're not going to run into problems later on on the field? Uh, the safest way is as, as previously indicated. You have your statement, it's your declarant. It's one of your defendants. Great. 
want to use in this factual scenario. Uh, look at what they said and uh, do not use any portions of what they said that specifically name by nickname or inferentially uh, uh, name the defendant who is there uh, but asserting their Sixth Amendment rights. And then also the safest way is to eliminate any reference to that person's actions. So it's as if they didn't exist and that's exactly what they did in uh, Richardson versus Marsh. David, does it make a difference if there is reference to other persons in the declarant statement, but there are multiple people who were involved, only one of which is on trial with the declarant? So what, what I think he's asking, or ultimately asking, this is this, think, go back to the, the question of what is a, uh, a Bruton issue, or what is a Gray versus Maryland issue, or a Richardson versus Marsh issue. Uh, a joint trial that names and facially incriminates the defendant asserting their Sixth Amendment rights. And so if the uh, statement of your declarant, maybe it references other guys or people, and the other evidence in the trial tells you that it wasn't just the person who's sitting next to your declarant um, involved in the crime, but maybe it was a group of people. So that way there's ambiguity as to who they're referring to. Uh, in that instance, that kind of redaction, either potentially changing it to that kind of vagary, or if you have a long statement, maybe you can pick and choose the ones that don't use names or nicknames, uh, where if they say something to the effect of, and I, and I think I have a slide up here that, that gives you kind of uh, maybe the best uh, idea. And we've ended up going a little bit out of order, so. So here, we're, this is the fact pattern of uh, Gray versus uh, Maryland. The uh, witness who read the confession and told the jury, was asked a question uh, in the interview, uh, who was in the group that beat Stacey Williams to death? Uh, this is what was read to the jury, and I use the pictures that these, these are all defendants in other cases, they're not involved in Gray versus Maryland. That was what was read. But in answer to, to Jeff's question, uh, a simple deletion, in fact, this is what the Supreme Court wrote in its own opinion. Why not just do it this way? Who was in the group that beat Stacy? Me, the declarant, and a few other guys. And those other guys would people, be people who weren't at the table, but other evidence would show that were involved. Even so though it could have been a reference to the code. Uh, certainly, and, and then you can see by a visual example why the deletion deletion doesn't work, right? Because they're specifically saying, hey, it's me, two people I definitely don't want to tell you about, maybe one of them sitting at the table right next to me, and then some other guys. And uh, to me, I think it's a decent visualization of why the uh, remedy in gray didn't work so well. So David, I am skipping a little bit to make sure that we get through everything. Uh, if a statement of a co-defendant facially exonerates the defendant, but becomes inculpatory and incriminating when contrasted with other evidence, can it be admitted in a joint trial without redaction? In, in my view, it, it, it depends. I mean, the rule of these cases is 
does it name and facially incriminate the person asserting their Sixth Amendment rights and being offered for the truth of the matter asserted in a joint trial, of course. And um, uh, something that's exonerating is not naming, or uh, it's naming, but it's not incriminating the accused. And so, now why would we be offering a statement of a declarant that specifically exonerates one of the people we have on trial? I don't know. That's for you guys to decide. But in my view, if it's truly exonerating, then it shouldn't implicate the Bruton rule. However, there's certainly arguments to be made that when it's coupled with other evidence and it becomes inculpatory, and certainly the defense would make it, that that's violative of the uh, Bruton rule. I just don't happen to agree. So let's say, for example, you and I are charged with a room And I talk to the police and tell them that uh, the both of us entered the home, uh, but you had told me that it was a home belonging to your old girlfriend and you were going to inside the home to, to get your, or retrieve your old pair of skinny jeans. Uh, can I Very old pair. <laughs> can I object uh, if any reference to you is eliminated? so that it makes it look like I entered the home by myself. In other words, can the defendant whose statement is being redacted complain about the redaction? Uh, the answer is yes. And uh, I'm going to fast forward here. Um, so I want to talk about uh, a couple of cases. It's People versus Douglas and People versus Stallworth. And uh, these were uh, cases that uh, posed kind of this very problem. You've now redacted your statement, but you've redacted it in such a way that the defense says, hey, judge, uh, this makes my guy look more guilty. Or it makes it look like he did it all by himself. Let me, let's face it, they're almost all he's, right? So I'll use he. Um, or it implies that he did something that he expressly said he didn't, such as, you know, I'm, I'm the uh, snitch in the scenario, and I say to the police, that Jeff and I uh, parked out in front of the car, and uh, Jeff and I went inside, and then I say, Jeff had the baseball bat, and he killed the victim. So uh, redacted, it's just admitted that I say, I go to the house in a car, uh, and I go inside. And then we know from other evidence that the victim was beaten with a baseball bat. So in that scenario, that complies with Richardson versus Marsh without any doubt. Uh, the problem is you have these cases, people versus Douglas and people versus Stallworth. Now there's a way to get around it in that factual scenario. But the problem is when the uh, statement is redacted consistent with Marsh, but the redactions imply, in this case, Douglas committed the acts that were actually committed by the co-defendant in that case, uh, at least by Douglas's own confession. Uh, in fact, the uh, redactions in that case specifically removed Douglas saying, I didn't use the knife. I didn't kill the victim. My co-defendant did. Now in that case, in Douglas versus uh, Stallworth, the Court of Appeal reversed, saying that that's fine. You complied with Richardson versus Marsh, the Bruton rule, but you've now uh, impaired a uh, fair trial for Douglas by presenting impliedly facts that are not true. And so you do run into this problem. Now I will tell you that one of the things that the Court of Appeal was most upset about in, in Douglas was when this was presented to the trial court, the um, 
trial court didn't take any time to learn exactly how this redacted confession would come in. The trial court just gave the government instruction, hey, remove all reference to the co-defendant, uh, all reference to Douglas, and that's fine. And they really, really critiqued the trial court for that. Not saying the result would be different if you did what we should ordinarily do, which is, hey, if we have a recorded confession, and it gets transcribed these days, go through it line by line. Judge, I want to use this, I want to use this, I want to use this, I don't want to use this. Uh, I'm redacting this because I want to comply with Richardson versus Marsh. Here you go. Defense, what do you want to do? And not that the result in Douglas would have been different had they done all that, but maybe because it would have at least shown some good faith in trying to even things out a little bit. Uh, when, and they came up with a rule, when redactions distort the role or make exculpatory statements seem inculpatory, there will be prejudice to the defendant and there will be reversal. There's People versus Stallworth. Uh, now here the redactions made the defendant's statement uh, seem implausible. This would be Stallworth made his statement seem implausible. And so in that situation, like in uh, Douglas, it also suggested that Stallworth had done things that he had expressly denied. Uh, but the redactions were done in compliance with uh, Richardson versus Marsh. Uh, they also reversed. But there's a decent case, People versus Lewis, uh, that tells you that, again, it was redacted consistent with Richardson versus Marsh. Um, and they used redactions like changing we went to the mall, I went to the mall. And in that case, it did tend to potentially overstate uh, Lewis's role because it completely eliminated someone who helped him commit the crime. But in that factual scenario, Lewis's statement encompassed all the elements of the crime for which he was charged. So you might have a factual scenario where someone, they, said, they say they didn't kill the person, but they admit to all the elements of felony murder. And so when you admit their redacted statement where they're like, yeah, I went in to do the robbery. I knew there was going to be a robbery. I helped him do it. I wanted it to happen. I had no defense whatsoever, but I had no idea they were going to kill anyone. Now, if you re redact the, I, the part where he talks about somebody else killing someone in a felony murder, that seems like it overstates the responsibility. But in People versus Lewis, they say, that's okay. So anytime the defense cites Stallworth or Douglas, and they will, uh, read Lewis, and there's probably a few others that may help you. So if they're guilty of the offense under both the unredacted and the redacted version, their argument's not going to get that far. I'd say that once more. So if, the, if the, the defendant who made the statement is guilty under both versions of the statement, under both the unredacted and the redacted statement, even though they might look a little bit worse, they're still probably going up lose in their attempt to prevent uh, the use of statement to a trial? I, I, yes, I agree, but to be honest, uh, you know, how many of us are going to be given that kind of easy case, if you will? I mean, it's fairly frequent, right, that they're going to throw in some little defense or some uh, little aspect of their confession that doesn't make it a full confession. I can't remember the last time I had a full, full confession. What about evidence code section 256, though? Right? That gives you the right to introduce uh, all aspects of a discussion, if it's on the same subject, can the can the declarant say, "Hey, look, um, you have 
introduced a portion of my statement, and now I want to introduce the rest of the statement, and I have a right to do so under Evidence Code Section 356. All right, well, this may be, uh, I'm going to jump ahead here. So uh, try not to read ahead if you can. Uh, if you read the plain terms of 356, it's really broad. Uh, and it makes it seem like, really, if there's one line of a letter that we read into evidence or one line of a confession that's read into evidence, that the defense gets all of it. And they'll say crazy things like that. They'll say, well, gosh, judge, I should be able to get the statement that the defendant made a full day later when the police uh, started the interview anew. Um, I will simply tell you that I agree on the plain language of 356. It really does seem like that. But when I said the California Supreme Court is sometimes wrong, and this one, they're sometimes right. Uh, if you look, the Courts of Appeal, or the California Supreme Court, has interpreted the broad meaning of 356. And in my opinion, it is substantially narrower than the plain terms. I, actually, I don't think it's really questionable. It, it, the interpretation of 356 is substantially narrower. They have said and uh, cited this Gombos case, phenomenal case, but it's also uh, referred to in uh, areas, but it has to be further inquiry into otherwise inadmissible hearsay, right? Because we're, it's the, perhaps the defendant's statement, so it's not a, um, a party opponent in that factual scenario, where it relates to the same subject. And it is necessary to make the already introduced conversation understood. And that really is the big qualifier. Where it is necessary to make the already introduced conversation understood. Uh, just very briefly. Uh, everyone, I'm sure it's been shown here, but uh, my cousin Vinny, you know, where he uh, uh, says, I shot the clerk. Now, I'm just going to add a little blurb, but like if, and if he said, dude, I'm joking. Like, you can't admit that I shot the clerk and then skip the dude I'm joking part. I know he didn't say dude I'm joking, but you, you get my point. That's his face, right? He's not, uh, or he's questioning it. We can't admit a facially incriminatory statement and just skip the part that explains it or makes it understood. But if three hours later in the interview, after the defendant said, I was there, which is, let's say that's all you want. You just want that he admitted he was at a particular location at a particular time. And then in this long, drawn-out interview with law enforcement, he says, what, you really think I did something? I didn't do anything. That is not making his admission of presence understood. Now, I, I agree. We're going to lose that argument in front of a lot of judges, but we're going to win it in front of a bunch, too. And so I don't agree that 356 gives them everything. Well. There is a distinction between how 356 works when it comes to separate statements and a single statement. And you do get to go into a lot more of the conversation if it's a single statement. Uh, 356 is divided into two kind of separate uh, bits, one of which deals with, hey, if you enter part of a conversation, we get to inquire on the whole of that conversation. Uh, it's a little different if it's a separate statement. But in any event, does 356 trump the confrontation rights of the defend the, the, the co-defendant? In other words, the courts are redacting these statements in order to prevent a confrontation clause violation. 
the declarant is coming in and saying, well, I have a right under 356. But if the balance is whether or not the defendant's 356 right trumps the other defendant's right of not being, uh, not having a Sixth Amendment violated, the Sixth Amendment right is going to trump in a joint trial generally. Okay. Um, Does the Bruton rule have any application, Dave? And again, I'm skipping ahead a little bit because I want to make sure we can go through our uh, hypothetical. Does the Bruton rule have any application when it's the co-defendant rather than the prosecution that seeks to introduce the statement? Yes. It doesn't matter whether it's your uh, co-defendant offering the statement uh, against, uh, well, I shouldn't say against, but you know, typically that's going to be the factual scenario where uh, this defendant is offering the statement uh, maybe they'll say it's a declaration of penal interest, uh, but it also exonerates them somehow because it's their co-defendant taking responsibility for the crime. Uh, in that factual scenario, the Bruton rule uh, would still apply. What if the unredacted statement of the defendant that implicates the co-defendant is being offered for a non-hearsay purpose? Do we have a Bruton issue? So, by definition, a Bruton issue is when you are offering an out-of-court statement, hearsay, uh, an out-of-court statement for the truth of the matter asserted. So, that when you're not doing that, then it is not a confrontation clause issue. Or a hearsay issue. Certainly. Okay, so, if we have now redacted the statement, uh, can we play the tape-recorded statement before the jury with these redactions in it? Well, it depends. If they, uh, you have to worry about, if the cases we'll talk about, uh, if the redactions make the uh, statement seem inartful or grammatically incorrect or implausible or these Stallworth or um, Douglas issues that I talked about that uh, potentially overstate that person's role or exclude uh, exonerating information. Uh, so if it doesn't do all those things, then yes, I mean, you can play a redacted recording. But we all know, like, let's take from a practical matter, in a, in a three-hour interview, when you try to redact it and take out those portions, and if you're changing an I to a we or a we to an I, it just doesn't work in practice. And so, uh, you know, in some ways, having the unrecorded interviews make that a little bit easier. Uh, having the recorded ones, you kind of have to make a judgment call. Uh, is it really important for them to hear it? If it's really important to hear it, you're probably going to have major problems, especially in a long interview. So if you can't do that, what do you do? I mean, can you not play the tape, but just have an officer come on and essentially summarize the conversation in a way that uh, makes no reference to the other defendant? Has anyone here done that? So uh, the answer is is yes, but to, to be forewarned, there is a footnote, and it is a footnote, in Bruton versus United States, and it actually questions the ability for even a trained law enforcement officer uh, whose job is to only answer the appropriate questions in the appropriate way and not make reference to inadmissible information, um, but they specifically, they specifically question the validity of that approach. Uh, now, I did some research, and I know Jeff did some as well. I can't find any California cases saying that the warning in uh, Bruton that you shouldn't do that or that we don't see that being possible. Uh, my view is, and it 
it's worked for Mr. Pandori, and I have no doubt that it would work for all of us, uh, especially with a recorded interview and a script, uh, to uh, have the officer, and even a script in, a, in an interview that wasn't recorded, but prepared ahead of time, where you've presented it to the court, you've presented it to the defense, you've figured out what the witness is going to say, and everybody knows what the question is going to be, and everybody knows what the answer is going to be. And a, a trained professional police officer, that should be totally fine. And then, of course, let the jury know that it was recorded, but this is being done uh, because the court has asked us to do it that way. Is that kind of how it went for you, Dave? Yeah. All right, so Dave, I'm just going to ask you a few quick questions, and then we'll hit the hypothetical. If the court rules that the statement cannot be adequately redacted, what are our options? So if it cannot be adequately redacted, your options are simple, uh, yet very complex uh, in practice. Uh, don't use the statement. Well, honestly, you probably should be asking yourself the question of why am I going through all this difficulty if I don't need it to begin with. Uh, if that's not an option, severance, who really wants that? Uh, and then finally, a dual jury. And I, I, I have a slide for it. I won't show it to you because uh, we're uh, limited on time. But I just want to talk to you about dual jury or multiple juries just for a brief moment. Uh, there is enormous institutional inertia on our bench for a dual jury. Uh, Carlos Vega is, my understanding, is the only person who's done one since the early 90s. I have tried multiple times and I have failed at every turn. That being said, no less than the U.S. Supreme Court has said that the risk of inconsistent verdicts in separate trials when there ordinarily could or should be a joint trial is inequitable and scandalous. Why would our courts want to be involved in a process that could potentially really lead to an inequitable result? That sounds bad enough, but a scandalous result. <laughs> and I, I, and I cannot emphasize enough that that should be it should not be the second thing we talk about when we have a real Bruton case before a judge for testimonial statements. It should be one of the first things we're talking about. Judge, if you want to do this, then we want a dual jury. And here's the parade of horribles that could happen if you don't do it. Doesn't mean you're going to win, but you're never going to get it if you bring it up after you lose the redaction issue. You're only going to have a shot if you bring it up right at the outset, in my opinion. Okay, there are a couple more questions, but I do want to make sure we get to the hypo. So uh, let's call that up on the screen. Turn to the last page of the handout. So you got three defendants who commit a robbery of a 7-Eleven store. One of the defendants is driver. Let's call him a defendant LM. The two other defendants are Defendant Bauman and Defendant Cathcart. They enter the store. Uh, Bauman shoots and kills a clerk. Cathcart grabs the money. Bauman and Cathcart get back into Alem's car. There's a witness to the robbery who provides a partial license plate and a description of the car, but the witness cannot identify the driver. Well, the police track the car and they eventually arrest uh, Alem and Bauman. Cathcart, uh, she manages to get away. She's somewhere presumably living in Argentina under an assumed name of Kathy Barbcott. <laughs> After the arrest, <laughs> defendant Alem gives the following statement to the police. 
leave it to a limb to give it up. <laughs> Bauman apparently voluntarily absented himself from this trial since he's not. Oh, he is here. There he, he showed up. Okay, so this is what a limb says. I've known Bugsy, Bauman, and Crazy, Kathy for a couple of years. We all claim West Heading. They asked me to drive them to the 7-Eleven store on San Carlos. I agreed. When we arrived, I waited for them outside to return. I knew Bugsy generally carries a firearm. I had no idea they were going to commit a robbery. I heard a gunshot, and they came running out of the store. Crazy jumped into the car carrying some cash and told me to drive to her house, and then I'd get some cheddar out of it. <laughs> we drove back to Crazy's apartment. While we were driving, Crazy turned to Bugsy and said, you didn't need to shoot him, Warren. Bugsy said, keep your stinking Monday morning coin back to yourself, Cathcart. We never divvied up the check. Okay, so that's the statement. And uh, now you want to introduce as much of this statement as possible in the joint trial of Alem and Blum. Uh How are we going to go about redacting this? Uh, so just briefly, I I'll disagree in the sense that the first thing you need to do is why do you need, what do you need out of the statement? That's really the first question. If you don't need any of it, why go through this pain in the rear end? To me, there needs to be a determination, do I need it? No one identified a one. I'm not debating no, that well, on this back pattern, but I just want to give you know, a few guidelines since we skipped that slide. So what do you need, like absolutely need out of the statement? And then the next question, identify those off, all right? And so then ask the question, what would I really like, but it's not absolutely necessary, and put that on a list, versus what you don't need at all. Because if you don't need it at all, yeah, you can go through the redaction analysis, um, but if you're, like, this is a three-line statement. It's necessarily short and simplistic, or no more than three lines, but it's a few lines uh, for this presentation. But if you get a three-hour interview, that's a lot of time and effort uh, that is going to, if not tire you out, it's going to tire the judge out going through a hundred-page transcript where you've asked for three-quarters of it, most of it which you don't really need. So, uh, and I'm a firm believer that, especially when you're going to get the court saying, hey, the, the DA, and you know, I've asked the DA to present it this way, so this worry about you're not playing all of it, you know, is somewhat mitigated, right? Because the judge is saying, I asked them to do it this way, uh, sort of thing, where it's, you know, jumpy, that sort of thing. All right, so let's go through it. So, uh, <coughs> it's not supposed to show both at the same time, but it is. So the first statement, uh, I've known uh, Bauman and Cathcart are referring to their nicknames. Uh, as we know from Gray versus Maryland, uh, certainly deleted don't work, uh, so nicknames aren't going to work either. That's still going to facially incriminate uh, a co-defendant. Now, for a couple of years, that actually doesn't facially incriminate anybody in a crime anyway. But knowledge of two persons, they enter into a conspiracy to commit a robbery that results in a murder, coupled with some other evidence. You're not probably going to win that argument, which is not incriminating. They're just saying they know each other. Now, what if there's a ton of other evidence that they were friends? Maybe they were roommates. You have a thousand pictures of them together. Uh, it may not be as much of an issue. Maybe the defense doesn't make an issue. But why? Like, you don't need to. This is easy enough to redact in the, the Richardson versus Marsh scenario. All references that name and incriminate in any way the person asserting their Sixth Amendment rights, which is only Bauman in this factual scenario, because he's the guy sitting there 
uh, Cathcart has uh, uh, successfully avoided prosecution with the South American uh, acquittal. <laughs> so uh, when I was in San Diego, they called it the Mexican acquittal. Like when people went down to Mexico uh, uh, to avoid prosecution. All right, next we all claim West Heading. Is there a word in here that might cause a problem? Oh, right. So simple enough. We claim West Heading. Now, is this going to work in a recording? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, it really, that's going to be a case-by-case -case basis, frankly, in my view. The longer the statement you have, these people say the same thing over again, but in slightly different ways, right? Uh, maybe they say something over again in slightly different ways that doesn't necessarily have that easy 356 tie that you really don't like. So pick the one that is farther away from that 356 tie that you really don't like, right? Give yourself something to work with. It'd be a different story if we didn't have Cathcart involved at all. Oh, Yes, because I, 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 we, yes, that would be a, a challenge. And you might uh, lose this, but this isn't, uh, no one said this is a gang case, so maybe you don't use uh, West Heading, and the last time I checked, uh, criminal prosecutions is not listed in 2622E, but you never know, uh, the ACLU might have their way someday. So uh, they asked me to drive them to the 7-Eleven store on San Carlos, I agreed. Uh, anyone, uh, like, what would be some possibilities here? I, I was asked. Yeah, it's simple enough. Uh, I was asked to drive to the settlement store. I agree. Not really going to work in a recording in any way. Uh, that's just going to be too jumpy. It's going to seem obvious that it's deleted. That's never going to work. Maybe you don't need this. Maybe you do. That's something you have to decide on your own fact pattern. Uh, when we arrived, I waited outside for them to return. Anyone? I hear whispering. So just skip the for them to return. Uh, it should be, it's when we arrived. Now you might have a problem. Maybe they, uh, they don't like the we, even with Cathcart being involved. But, and a plain application of Richardson versus Marsh, this sh should work. It's the, basically the fact pattern of Richardson versus Marsh, uh, except in Richardson versus Marsh, there was more than three people involved. There were quite a few. Uh, I know Bugsy generally carries a firearm. Yes, no. I mean, this is obvious, right? Like, no, you're not going to be able to do that. Uh, unless Bugsy's counsel is... Uh, wants it in for some reason and doesn't make a Sixth Amendment objection. Maybe he doesn't like James very much and just wants to sell him down the river. But, uh, but we all like James. Uh, all right, so I had no idea they were going to commit a robbery. For me personally, uh, we're not offering that. Like, that doesn't help us. <laughs> so, uh, now maybe it's got to come in under 356. Uh, maybe that's some argument that has succeeded. Uh, so let's say that's true. Let's say the defense convinces the judge, no, I, I, I want that in. If that's true, can we still then redact it to kind of take a middle road? Uh, sure. I mean, you get, I had no idea there was going to be a robbery. I had no idea uh, that horrible Miss Cathcart was going to commit a robbery, whatever you wanted to put in there. Uh, I would encourage using fewer additions uh, as you can. 
just to keep it uh, as true to the original statement. But I, I will tell you, in this 356-1, nowhere in here, in the statements that we've admitted, have said a single thing about the person's intent. So why does this need to come in to make what they previously said understood? This person didn't say, I knew what was going to happen. They didn't say, I didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't say what they went to the store to do at all. Not to buy cigarettes, not to buy anything else, right? So, uh, Three fifty-six by terms is very broad, but this is not necessary to make any of this understood. And that argument should be made. We're not always going to win it. Uh, so that's my three fifty-six argument. I heard a gunshot, and they came running out of the store. Just leave it at I heard a gunshot. So now you've got evidence that this declarant in this particular case, Mr. Uh, Alem, who's giving it up, has now said, "I know." something that suggests there was a crime inside. So now you've got your potential, uh, well, 32 at the very least, but... Alternatively, you could just say, and crazy came running out of this Uh Sure, but I, I would, uh, uh, that's a, that's putting something, it's not, it's not totally new, but now you're putting something in there that's not exactly what it says. And all I would say about that is unless you absolutely need that redaction in that way, because maybe the next statement is going to give you some information that somebody got in the car or that the person drove away. Uh, it just depends on what you need. So, but you already have this, now you've got this statement, right? So do you need to say crazy jumped in the car and, and kind of add something that's not there when you've got it here, right? Because uh, there's nothing about this statement that says anything about uh, that Bauman character who's asserting his constitutional rights, right? There's nothing in there. It doesn't say anything about him. So this should be plainly fine. We drove back to, and, and frankly, the, there's going to be a couple just like that. We drove back to Crazy's apartment. Doesn't mention Bauman in any way. So with a limiting instruction, this only comes in against defendant Alem. This should be totally fine. This is straight up simple. Uh, Richardson versus Marsh. There's no facial or inferential implication. The, the I'm sure everyone knows the answer to this is obviously no. You cannot do that. And there's no real way to redact it uh, in, in any particular way that it's useful. Unless someone has any ideas. Uh, Bugsy said, keep your stinking Monday morning quarterback to yourself, uh, cat card. Again, there's no real way, maybe if you had a, a third or fourth defendant that wasn't on trial, um, you might be able to redact this in a way uh, that uh, um, something was said, but if that was somehow important uh, that it was said. You could try to say that this is being offered for not for it. The truth of the matter asserted, not that uh, that uh, Ms. Cathcart should really keep her money making quarterbacking to herself, uh, although that's, yeah, I don't think that's a, a assertion of historical fact. You could say, well, the judge is offered for a non-hearsay purpose. There's a case, Tennessee versus Street, that suggests maybe you can do this. You should read Tennessee versus Street. I don't think we would win that argument, but that's another issue. Uh, we never give you the whichever cheddar. This should be simple enough. Uh, it should be admissible.
All right, so we are out of time. There's uh, maybe three or four questions left. Fear not, though, all those questions will be answered in the IPG memo. And uh, thank you very much for your attention.